if you know your Presbyterian history, uh, first of all, you're a nerd. And secondly, you'd understand that time-wise, at the end of the 19th century, this is when uh, liberalism was fighting for the soul of Presbyterianism. This is when the theological liberalism that says the Bible is not completely true, and so we've got to accommodate the Bible to changing perspectives and trends over times. That was a late 19th, early 20th century problem. So you, we're a school like Princeton that were founded to create Presbyterian ministers. Princeton came into existence to train Presbyterian ministers. And about this point, the faculty at Princeton starts going nuts, gets liberal, doesn't believe scripture anymore, and you start to have these schisms. And that's where the Orthodox Presbyterian Church came from. And you hear about guys like Machen who fought for the soul of Christianity, where they said this, this liberalism that denies the truth of scripture is not just a different version of Christianity. It's a different religion. It is not Christianity. And so as Machen and others are dealing with this in the denominations, Cornelius Van Til, as an apologetics professor, is thinking about this through the lens of, of faith conversations, of how do we defend the faith, what's the appropriate way, given the inerrancy of scripture, to talk to others about our faith in a way that's both persuasive and honoring about God. And so at top of mind for Van Til was that God's authority had to be supreme in every aspect of our faith conversations. That we needed to be really careful in the way we talk about Christianity to not ever let it seem like something other than the Word of God is at the top of the stack of authority. Uh, it's the example we've used many times of if, if Andrew gives me such a persuasive case for Christianity and I have so much faith and trust in Andrew that I will believe no matter what he tells me and in the end I say I believe because Andrew is an amazing guy and he's a smart guy and he would not believe this if it was wrong and I, I, just, I trust him then what is my supreme authority? Well it's not God, it's Andrew because the moment Andrew says, you know what Scientology is more fun, we're going to do that then suddenly I'm off doing on a boat in Florida with him um, it really comes down to questions of neutrality and that's what we're going to focus on as we talk about this presuppositional approach um, the, the question we need to think through is, in faith conversations, can we be neutral? And if we can be, should we be? Is neutrality something that we should strive for in these conversations? Van Til was absolutely convinced that we should not strive for neutrality and that we could not be neutral if we tried. Neutrality is not a real thing. We cannot persuade others about the truth of our biblical convictions, about the truth of the biblical framework by setting aside those biblical convictions, setting aside the biblical framework, and somehow proving them without that. Um, and even if we could, that's not what God wants us to do. That's not honoring to God. So that was just Van Til's sort of fundamental starting place. And uh, that's why we're going to spend most of today talking about neutrality. I don't... I don't think it's important that we belabor the point of neutrality because you all deserve a graduate level Sunday school class in philosophy. I think this is the heart and soul of all these faith conversations. I think wherever you end up coming down 
on how you're going to approach talking about your faith, you will feel all of the pressure of the world to be neutral. And the accusations that will be levied against you by those who don't want to hear what you have to say is that you're biased. It is that you, you, you're only, you're assuming your perspective. Whereas if you would just take off your faith hat for a minute and look at things objectively and reasonably and rationally, you would come to different conclusions. And I think not only do you need to know how to overcome that, but I frankly think part of my job today is to convince you that Van Til and others are right about this. That neutrality is this kind of neutrality that they're describing is not true. It's not possible. If it were, it wouldn't be good, but it's not possible. Uh, and so that's, that's what we're going to cover this morning. Why is neutrality so tempting? I mean, you've got Van Til. Here's this guy from Holland, comes over here, gets educated, becomes a seminary professor. He's teaching apologetics. And even in that context, and you think this is 100, 1,500 years ago, um, he's, he's wrestling with this pull toward neutrality, the desire of people to tell him he needs to be neutral. This is not some new thing that we are facing. He was dealing with the fruits of modernity. We all know, if we think about the Enlightenment, and then the thinking that came after the Enlightenment was basically truth or knowledge of truth doesn't come through revelation. It comes through reason. We don't know what's true because God said it's true. We know what's true because we figure it out for ourselves. And that's the way you can know something is true, is through reason, the scientific method and evidence. Without those things, you couldn't know that anything was true. Modernity, one of the positives of modernity, was at least that there is such a thing as truth. There is objective truth, and we can know it through the use of objective facts. We can use science. We can discover. And through that gathering of evidence and through the use of reason and logic, we can be confident in what we believe. Because modernity was all about replacing ignorance with knowledge. Modernity said that the human problem is that we have ignorance, and we've got to replace it with knowledge. And the way you get knowledge is through reason, it's through facts, it's through evidence, it's through using these processes. So that's good. We, we, big picture, yes, we like this. Ignorance bad, knowledge good, truth does cast out all this darkness. Yeah, this all, this all good. Uh, the problem is they were looking for a godless knowledge. The Enlightenment was primarily uh, led by people who wanted to justify their own immorality. They wanted to behave how they wanted to behave. And just like any of us, whenever we want to do what we want to do, we will come up with any logic we can think of that defends our choices, where we get to make excuses for what we're doing and somehow justify it as right. We all want to be self-justified especially people under the influence of modernism. Younger people are more okay with living in a way that is completely contradictory to what they say they think and believe. But that's a relatively new phenomenon. Most people prefer to be self-deceived, where they say the way they're living is consistent with what they believe, even when it's not. So enlightenment and modernity is where naturalism came from. And naturalism starts with this good idea. Science is good. Evidence is good. Facts are useful. God gave us reason and rationality to figure stuff out. 
It starts in that good place, but then naturalism says, therefore, only natural explanations are possible. There can be no supernatural, period. Can't happen. Everything has a natural explanation. And the fact that most things have rational, natural explanations does not mean that everything has a natural explanation. Uh, But naturalism says, yes, it does. Everything has to have a naturalistic explanation. And any appeal to the supernatural is invalid. Now you're just in the world of fairy tales. You're making stuff up. That shouldn't be believed. You shouldn't have any confidence in that. Note in modernism, and especially in naturalism, but this is our problem as Christians with the Enlightenment, is the Enlightenment has a real subtle rebellion at its core, which is, I don't need God to tell me truth. I'll figure it out myself, right? It's that petulant toddler of, don't show me how to do it. I'll figure it out. This is the grown-up version of that, where God says, I've given you two things. I've given you special revelation and natural revelation. You can learn a lot through natural revelation, but you won't understand it rightly or completely unless I tell you what is true. So you need both. And the Enlightenment said, no, we can figure it out from natural revelation. We, We can figure it out on our own. We don't need your help. And so it's got this rebellious undertone to it that's important for us to recognize. The people that we're talking to about Christianity who are either rejecting Christianity outright or more likely today are either um, saying that's fine for you, but not for me, or even they're claiming to be with you. I am Christian, but none of those parts of it really matter for my life. None of that stuff is really something that I have to submit to or be a part of. You need to hear in that, sympathetically, that rebellious undertone. Nobody tells me what to do. Because a lot of times I've seen Christians, and I've felt this myself, when we are talking to people about our faith, I think, I think especially when we're talking to people who are not being just Christianity's dumb, blah, blah, blah. When we're talking to people who either claim to be Christians or who that's your truth, not my truth kind of thing. We're all good. When we have these conversations, we get frustrated that we make a good argument, a good specific point, and it doesn't persuade them. They don't do anything about it. And you're like, but but what I said just made sense. And what you say isn't making any sense. Why are you not doing what I'm saying, which is more sense than what you're saying? And what we've forgotten is there's a rebellious undertone to this. It's not mean-spirited rebellion. It's not like they're actually shaking an angry fist against God. You don't tell me what to do. But deep down, that is how they feel. I'm not going to let God tell me what to do. I'm not going to let God change my behavior. This is what we see the most in kind of the South where everybody gets the benefit of being called a Christian or being allowed to call themselves a Christian, no matter what they believe. And where you try to ask questions, a lot of times what it comes down to is, I will believe whatever you want me to believe. I will salute whatever Christian flag you need me to salute. I will participate in whatever Southern rituals I need to participate in. I will make the annual pilgrimage to Mecca on Christmas and Easter. Right? I will do what is required of me. I will not change my life. 
And that's that rebellion, that seed of rebellion underneath. That's exactly what today's scripture passage is about. This is not a new thing. This is a 6,000-year-old problem. Um, So this worldview is what we'll be talking about uh, several times in the discussions today. This, This concept of how does one come to truth? How can I know what is true? Um, and it's when somebody says, I can only know what's true from the evidence that's in front of me and, and without supernatural explanations, there's no appeal to God allowed, um, then that is a worldview. That's a way of thinking about reality. They say that we start with disbelief. That worldview, naturalism, says you start disbelieving everything and then you acquire enough evidence to prove that it's true now let's pause there for just a minute before we get into kind of dissecting neutrality in general but can you see why even though as i've said i'm i'm in the classical apology camp why i think this is such an important point because if the place that you allow someone to begin is that they are the judge over truth and faults. They get to disbelieve it and pile up all the evidence until such time as they are convinced otherwise. Then who is the ultimate authority? They are. The one making that judgment. And so part of what we have to accomplish in these conversations, and it's a tough balance, and this is why I'm uncomfortable with full-throated presuppositionalism, is because I do think there's a balance between we do have to allow people and acknowledge that there's a personal aspect of this, of me becoming persuaded that God is true. And we can't discount the importance of that personal event that I am persuaded it's true. What we also have to convince the person is that the only way you become persuaded it's true is by a work of God the Spirit. God the Spirit can use all of this evidence. God the Spirit can use all of these philosophical arguments. God the Spirit can use all of this historical proof because that's all good stuff. But if you are not submitted to God the Spirit, you look at exactly the same stuff and you say it can't be true. Where you start is where you finish. Uh, And so we'll keep coming back to this. Uh, Questions about, well, let me me do this other part first. I said modernity pulls us toward neutrality. But in addition to that, and this is not a problem that Van Til had to deal with, it's a problem for us, is postmodern thinking also pulls us toward a desire for neutrality. Which is funny because postmodernism is the total opposite of modernism. Postmodernism says there is no absolute truth. Truth is subjective. Truth is in the eye of the beholder, not the thing they're beholding. Modernism says, what does this text mean? Postmodernism says, what does this text mean to you? Two very different questions. Um, texts like the Bible then, don't have truth that is there to be communicated. The Bible sitting all by itself to a postmodern does not have truth just waiting for you to find it. 
The Bible is an object on which you impose the truths that you want to hear and then read that out of there because texts don't have meaning. Texts don't have truth. And you get into, like, this is the crazy realm of philosophy. You want to just lose your mind? Go study this. Go study what's called deconstructionism and Derrida and these philosophers that truly argue words have no meaning. Now, Madonna argued that too. She had <laughs> words, didn't she, words have no meaning and sentences are worse, right? This, this idea that the author may have a meaning when he writes it, but you cannot possibly get that meaning. You bring your meaning onto it, and that's the only thing that can ever be communicated. And so everybody gets to create their own reality. And in a world where everybody gets to create their own reality, who is your ultimate authority? Me. Me. I got to create the world I wanted to create, and I like it here, right? Uh, I'd like it more if other people would follow the rules of my reality, but at least I follow the rules of my reality. So in this context, why do people think neutrality is so appealing or important? In In a natural modernism context, it's because that's how we can clear away all of our biases and really get to the truth. But in a postmodern context, why is neutrality better? So we can say kumbaya and I'll be friends. Because, yeah, dogmatism is an insult. Yeah. If, you, if you claim that your truth is the truth, y- y- how arrogant could you be? How arrogant could you be that you possess the truth? Even if you say, no, 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 I received this truth. In fact, from the God who made all things, the God of the universe gave this truth, not just to me, but to you and to all of us. How full of yourself are you? I I don't know. I thought I was emptying myself, (laughs) but no, okay. Uh, I guess I'm I'm pretty arrogant here. So uh, things are pulling us toward this neutrality. The draw toward neutrality is very real. And whether it's because in your own mind, you're wired like I'm wired, you're a good Missourian, somebody's got to show you. Like, I want neutrality because I want to clear away all your biases and preconceived notions. Show me the facts, and I'm a smart person. I will come to the right conclusion if you show me the right facts without all of your additional biased fluff. Whether that's what draws you personally toward neutrality, or that the person you happen to be in a faith conversation with is a delightful postmodern who's going to be highly offended if you claim anything other than neutrality, you're going to feel that draw. You're going to feel like, okay, I should do this. I should be neutral. And for all of my personal anti-presuppositionalism bluster, I do want to remind you that what I'm saying is not, yeah, they got it wrong, you should be neutral. No, they're right. In fact, in just a moment, we'll go through how you couldn't be neutral if you wanted to. It's not a thing. But you shouldn't want to. I'm simply saying you may need to allow the person you're talking to to believe that's what you're doing for a time. If that's an important thing for them, if that's a deal breaker for them, I think there's a way to go down that path where you're actually going down this path and you tell them that later. (laughs) You, You get around to explaining how all this was possible later. In the true presuppositional method, there's an order to things. And it's very important that at the beginning of that order is blasting up the concept of neutrality. 
This is not something you can do, making the philosophical arguments against it. And those arguments are true, and they're helpful. I'm not sure they have to be so early in the discussion. But questions about the appeal of neutrality. We'll talk about the problems in a minute. But questions about its appeal. So why not be neutral? If that's what people want, and our goal is to win people over, why not just be neutral? Why not just kick the tires on that? The biggest problem with neutrality is that it's impossible. It simply can't be done. Everyone has a worldview through which everything is interpreted. Now, when I say that, you're probably not hearing what I'm meaning. You're probably thinking one layer higher than I'm meaning. You're probably thinking at the layer of, oh, you know, God's word is true, and Paul means, Paul means that even when people try to set aside their biases, Christianity is just such a deep part of you that you couldn't possibly say things that aren't undergirded by the truth of Christianity. And that's actually not what I'm saying. That's valuable. That's not what I'm saying. I want you to go a layer below even that. Um, There is no such thing as an uninterpreted fact. In philosophy, they call them brute facts. There is no such thing as a piece of information that is simply given to you, has access to your mind, that does not go through the filter of your mind. Every, I mean, think about this on a trivial level. Every single thing you see, you interpret. Everything. Somebody gives you a look. Do you interpret that as a brute fact? No, their face changed shapes. (laughs) That's exactly what happens, especially to married people, right? We just very calmly say, oh, shape change. Shape change on the face, right? Somebody says a piece of information to you. You don't receive that information as a brute fact. You filter through, why are they telling me that? Why are they telling me it now? Why did they say it that way? Why did they use those words? Why they, right? And it may not always be negative. Sometimes it's positive. But all of it goes through a filter. Well, in the same way that there's that kind of trivial level of filter that we all have, every single fact you hear has a filter of what I'm going to call intelligibility. Words don't make sense unless they come through some sort of filter. So when you talk about things like, yeah, I got up at the crack of dawn. Think about how many things I have to be assuming or know as true, and you have to know as true for that sentence to make any sense. That dawn is this recurring, predictable thing. That there's a difference between awake and asleep. Consciousness and unconsciousness. That that's a choice that someone, right? The concept of choice. The, con- like, the fact that we talked about last week uh, when we talked about one of the views uh, and we talked about, uh, it was the Reformed Epistemology view, and we were talking about uh, properly basic ideas that we're not living in a simulation, that we're not just characters in somebody else's video games. I don't have any proof for that. I don't need any proof for that. Right? But everything that you think is filtered through that. And when we start to talk about science later, one of the tragedies about science is it makes no sense apart 
from these underlying assumptions. The scientific method itself is based on the idea that repeatability is predictable. That if I do the same thing the same way, I'll get the same result. I take this chemical and that chemical and I mix them together and I get this. The fact that that would happen a second time has an underlying philosophical assumption. The universe cannot be totally random if I can repeat things in a predictable way. So when I talk about these these underlying assumptions, this filter that makes neutrality impossible, for some of us, yes, that is a complex filter that is developed from that underlying level of the intelligibility of the universe. We can see things. We can trust our senses. The information that we're receiving makes sense and we can process it in an orderly way. Some of us have that, plus all the way up to God's words true. When I see this tragedy, I know how to interpret this tragedy, not just because of the intelligibility of the universe, but because of a good and sovereign God. But even the people that we're having faith conversations with that are nowhere near this God's word is true level, they are still, whether they accept it or not, at this intelligibility of the universe level. And you know what they never did on that? They never had any proof. In fact, as we'll talk about later, their worldview can't support the weight of this. Their worldview can give no answer for why this is or how it could be. Only Christianity has an answer for this level, which is why we believe this one, right? Is that God has shown us, revealed in us the comprehensive truth of himself and of his word. A worldview is a series of ideas, a series of assumptions through which everything else is interpreted. They're not the things that you're talking about in the conversation. They're the things without which the conversation you're having makes no sense. Is that clear? So it's not the specific facts and data. It's the lens through which you interpret all facts and all data. In a specific faith conversation... If you're arguing about whether John, the Gospel of John, was written in the first century or later, you're arguing over specific facts. What presuppositionalism says is, you know, you could persuade them on those facts, but one of the ways it's important to persuade people on facts is by going the layer deeper and showing them that the nature of knowledge is something they're taking for granted. The fact that facts exist, the fact that they can understand facts, how we communicate facts, what all of that framework for actually having the debate over the specific fact that they're worked up about, they're just assuming all of that. They're doing exactly the thing that when they tell you to be neutral, they're saying you can't do. So they say you have to take every part of your worldview and set it aside. And what presuppositionalism will say is, wait a minute, if I took every part of my worldview and set it aside, and I took every part of your worldview and set it aside, we would sit here and stare at each other. Because there would be nothing that could be said. Nothing that could be said. We'd be stuck in this unintelligible, unrepeatable, unknowable universe. Um, So we should never be satisfied with just the right conclusions. We should want to know how people came to those conclusions. So something else about neutrality. I think God defends the 
impossibility of neutrality from his word several times. Let's, I would have given those out earlier if I were more on top of things. Uh, Matthew twelve thirty. He's got that. Yeah. Um, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Romans eight five through eight. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Did you hear in that one, like, what is option C? You have a mind of God that sees truth, is of the spirit, right? Gets reality for what it is. You have the mind of the sinful man, which is death and hostile to God. What's option C? Where's the neutral mind in the middle? The truly unbiased observer. It doesn't exist. Uh, Karen, Colossians 2.8, just like I've always said. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So, Paul, again, says there's two options. There's A and B. There is that which depends on Christ... That's his shorthand. All manners of thought which depend on Christ. And then he uses all these other terms. Hollow, deceptive philosophy, human tradition, basic principles of this world. That's this bucket. Everything that depends on Christ is that bucket. There is no option C. There is no neutrality. You are either thinking as God thinks or you are thinking against the way God thinks There is no setting aside either of those and just, if you did, like you you somehow zoom out from reality to say, I will sit over, I'll take God's facts and I'll take these people's facts and I'll decide which is right. And God is saying, I made you, I made all the facts. You You can't zoom out from me and judge whether or not my facts are true. You are one of my facts, your very existence. Uh, it doesn't work that way. And what it comes down to is neutrality is impossible because intellectual autonomy is impossible. Um, that's just a fancy way of saying autonomy says I'm not submitted to anyone. Autonomy is I am perfectly and completely free. And so intellectual autonomy is to say I am in my mind in the ways that I think, in the things that I decide, I am perfectly and completely free. I am beholden to no one. And that's not something that's true. Minds are either submitted to or in rebellion against the God who made that mind. There's, there's not an alternative. There's not a third way. What is the measure of all things? You know, man is the measure of all things. Well, that's a pretty short measure. Isn't it? God has to be the measure of all things. So if we refuse to acknowledge that, consciously or subconsciously, we're in rebellion, intellectual rebellion, shaking our angry fists. Nobody tells me what to think. Oh, I'm trying to tell you what's true. Nobody tells me what's true. Uh, okay, so be wrong. Right? That really is what this looks like. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but... 
that be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is the standard of all things? It's the will of God. And what humans are supposed to do with these rational, logical faculties that he's given us is not put ourselves above the will of God and say, is that acceptable to me? Does that make sense? What we're supposed to do is to test all things against that standard of the will of God. And when it lines up, it's good and acceptable and pleasing and makes sense. And when it doesn't, it's us stupidly shaking our fists saying, you don't tell me what to do. Depends of our warfare, not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. What should be done of arguments that set themselves up as intellectual equal with the knowledge of God? We're to destroy them. Truth destroys those types of... That's why they're called lofty arguments. Lofty is not generally a compliment in the Bible. Lofty is you you got so filled up with hot air, you got a little higher up than you should. The Tower of Babel was lofty. These philosophical arguments that subject God to human authority are lofty. It's us getting too big for our britches. And it also stands to reason philosophically. If if you... Think about it for if God exists and God created all things and God created people in his image, doesn't that include our thinking? The way that we think, the way we're designed to think, isn't that in the image of God? Isn't that supposed to be a reflection of the way that God thinks? So we can't say, hey, let's have a conversation where we both stop thinking like God thinks to decide whether or not we should think like God thinks. (laughs) We've already made our choice, which is that we are in rebellion. So neutrality is not possible. What we see always depends on what we're prepared to see. Think again, use, use more trivial human examples. When you've made up your mind about someone or something, No matter what happens, doesn't it pretty much prove what you thought was going to happen? When I want to buy the expensive thing and somebody makes me buy the generic, there is no chance that the generic will ever get me to admit, yeah, you're right, it was pretty good. It won't happen. I have in my mind, no, this is cheap, this is junk, it's going to break, it's not going to taste good. And surprise, surprise, it breaks and it doesn't taste and it has nothing to do with how careful I was. It has to do with, right? We decide that person doesn't like me. And then everything that that person does or doesn't do agrees. Yep. See, told you. Whereas when we've decided that person really does like me, they can be horrible. Like, ah, it's just Stephen being Stephen. The time he punched me in the face, that's his uh, love language, face punches. Right? We... Um, what we see depends on what we are willing to see. And so a person's presuppositions about God, what they bring in to the conversation about God, will define. It will play the defining role with respect to how they interpret reality. And what the presuppositionalist view is saying that is so important, what Van Til was so hung up on that we should be too, 
is we've got to help people see that. However we do it and however we decide to do it in the conversation, we've got to help people see that what they're bringing in sort of wrote the book already on what all this evidence is going to mean. When you decide as a scientist, there is no such thing as the supernatural, then when you conduct your experiments and you cannot find a naturalistic explanation for something, you, you just have to go down the rabbit trail to crazy town. And you see this happen. You see like the serious physicists and cosmologists of the world who are really trying to figure out from the universe how all this came to be. And they are, they are smart people and they are thoughtful people, but they are ultimately dedicated to the idea that there can be no supernatural. And yet some of those people, these brilliant scholars, will posit that there is alien life in another universe that created us here. But that is as more believable than the idea that there could be a sovereign God who intentionally created us just like the way he revealed himself in the Bible. Right? You will see what you want to see. And that is the critical thing for us to get across in some way in these conversations is when you allow people to stand in judgment over all the facts and pretend that they're being neutral, you run the risk of even if you win, you lose. Even if you win, you lose. Because neutrality says that we can reason correctly apart from God. And if you present the overwhelming case and the evidence, and they agree with you in the end, they probably have come to still believe that they can reason correctly apart from God. And bully on them. Because they had all these facts and all this evidence, and they interpret it correctly. You're welcome, God. I will choose to believe you. Right? That's not winning. That's losing. We should be trying to show the other person that their standard for truth itself doesn't stand up to scrutiny. That we can't set aside the claims of God and claim that not God is equally valid and see what we reason to. Um, and again, back to the, if you make that person the judge over the worldview, and then he picks Christianity. Is, is he the ultimate authority or, or is God? Can you give an ultimate authority permission to be your ultimate authority? Is that how that works? Uh, okay, God, you've proved yourself enough that I'm willing to submit to you now. Ultimate authorities, it generally looks more like, oh, that's reality. Whether I like it or not, that's reality. So yeah, I can come to terms with that and God through his word can teach me to like that reality and show me how it's good for me. But I didn't come to accept this because it's good for me and I agreed that I wanted to participate. I came to accept this because it is how it is. This is what's true. Um, this is why the, the C.S. Lewis quote where he said, you know, put God in the dock. That's the, that's the British phrase, right? When you're on trial, the defendant is in the dock. And so this idea that you put God in the dock. And Lewis said, the trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man was on the bench and God was in the dock. You may find God not guilty, but you still think you're the judge. And so even by winning, you lose. Questions about that and about neutrality in general? Um, in, in practice, in, in the faith conversations, would you say there's some level of discernment um, in this sense? So, 
if if they are not a believer, they act that they, they hate God. But people's personal experiences, whether it be a poor experience in the church, is one thing. If you're talking to somebody like that, or if you're talking to Dawkins, who just hates God and stuff like that. So At a conceptual level. Yeah. yeah, and so there's probably, would you say there's discernment in the way that you show compassion. Yes. When we get to the tactics of these conversations, not next week, but the week after, we're going to have to start with questions. Not just because it's the gracious thing to do, though it is the gracious thing to do. People will appreciate that you do it. It will help you see if this is a conversation worth worth having or if this is a pearls before swine situation. If somebody can't even answer your well-intentioned, gracious, personal questions about their life history, this is not a person who's going to be open to having a humble conversation about worldview and about God. So there's lots of good reasons to graciously ask people questions about where they're coming from. Another one is, it's how you'll tailor your argument. Because a lot of times, a lot of academic bluster you find a wounded child underneath it. 